Section 4 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G. K. Chesterton. Section 4. The Men Who Brighten London, by G. K. Chesterton. It ought to be primarily a pleasure to find that men very different from ourselves agree with us, or with some good cause with which we sympathize but I think it is sometimes lawful to be amused at being in their company, so long as we realize that they may be equally amused at being in ours. I have great sympathy, for instance, with what is called the proposal to brighten London, if it means resistance to the plutocratic puritanism that is always trying to darken London. I am sure that if ever there is again such a thing as Merry England, there will also be such a thing as Merry London. As a poet not much more than a hundred years ago could still talk about Merry Islington, and just as I have relapsed into a daydream of all that lost laughter and natural human pantomime, have set up a maypole in Cheapside, and a greasy pole in Fleet Street, hung up a horse collar to be grinned through somewhere in the neighborhood of Essex Street, and generally spread my soul in all that broad English farce, which was at once so coarse and so Christian. I read a little further, and I am brought to a reflective pause. The paper tells me that the two chief champions of the revival of Merry London are Lord Curzon and Mr. Gordon Selfridge. Now this certainly causes a gentle wonder, tinged by a faint and far-off sense of incongruity, the remarks attributed to Lord Curzon are quite sensible remarks. No remarks are attributed to Mr. Selfridge, and it is possible that his silence was still more sensible, but I had not actually seen these figures in my vision of the festive street. When I set up the horse-collar, it was not in the immediate hope that Lord Curzon would grin through it. When I set up the maypole, it was not with the special purpose of seeing Mr. Gordon Selfridge dancing round it. I had not even the shadow of any malicious intention of making him climb the greasy pole, or attempt to climb the greasy pole. He had not been especially present to my imagination at all. My dream had been highly domestic and traditional, full of the old songs and stories of a time when London was actually brightened by Londoners. It was an entirely English atmosphere, which I had filled with entirely English humours. It was the life and liberty of my own country that had returned upon me like an English spring. And in the drifting speculations of my daydreams, it did not seem to me that Mr. Gordon Selfridge had anything particular to do with it. Lord Curzon is certainly a native and genuine product of England if not exactly, of merry England. When moving amid the mysterious pomp of the East, he may have been, at least relatively, 
a representative of the livelier and more laughing West, standing beside some tower of skulls, let us say, left by Tamburlaine or some other tyrant, he may well appear a happy and almost hilarious figure in some dark divan, surrounded entirely by mutes bearing bowstrings. He may well be the life and soul of the party. He is more cheerful than Chinese tortures, and would be a more comfortable traveling companion than a thug. But in the Christian Saturnalia of my vision, I can imagine a roar of revelry in which even his joyful voice would be drowned. It would never have occurred to me to picture him leading the dance to the old English tune of Boys and Girls Come Out to Play. And I think there are even elements in his personality making against such a choice. Anyone who leads that dance must at least be superior to superiority. Still less do I understand Mr. Selfridge and his call to brighten England, though I can easily believe in his divine vocation to brighten New England. Since the time of Puritanism, it has needed it a good deal, and since the time of Prohibition, it has needed it still more. Nor is Prohibition by any means alone among the creeping slaveries and chilly superstitions with which American democracy is threatened. He might brighten up the blue laws and change them to a brighter blue, as they once existed in Connecticut, and may possibly return there, and heaven knows where else as well. The blue laws might be described in every sense as blue devils. He might initiate any number of highbrows into the significance of high jinks. He might accept it as his high and holy mission to poke and prod something resembling a sense of humor into the awful female reformers of the United States, the women who would turn that civilization into a new sort of matriarchy, so far as one can have a matriarchy without any particular respect, either for maternity or matrimony. He might be granted the arduous adventure of putting a little sense into the intellectual American child, and to the little ass who said, When common sense comes in, superstition is annihilated. Or the little beast who recently gave up his toy gun to assist in the disarmament of the world. If he could not brighten the spirits of prohibitionists, he might at least brighten their wits. Surely America needs all her sons in the struggle, especially one thus gifted with uproarious gaiety and a mingled passion for revelry and revolt. In this case, indeed, I know nothing of the individual element, and can only infer it from the public partisanship. I have not generally found that the great capitalists of the modern world were a merry or even a happy race of men. There is a saying that money talks, but money hardly ever sings, and certainly money hardly ever laughs. But it may be that these are happy exceptions. Indeed, it might even be credible to them, if they were unhappy exceptions. There is one conceivable hypothesis about the motive of these two gentlemen, and one which would be altogether to their honor. It is that they are acting in an agony of remorse. It is that they are acting not because they think themselves peculiarly fitted to brighten London, because they have realized that they, or at any rate, people like them, 
have done so much to darken it. If any two types of humanity have brought our cities to their present condition, of a dismal industrialism persecuted by faddists, it is the two types of the aristocrat in alliance with finance and the shopkeeper who wants to own a street instead of a shop. It may be that Mr. Selfridge has realized this and looks back with a regret akin to remorse upon the happier days of the past, when he might have been the owner of one little shop, and linked with his equals in membership of one honorable guild. But whether he realizes it or not, there is no doubt that it is the reality. The reason why it is difficult for us to brighten London, the reason why it is easy for prigs and lunatics to darken London, is simply that we have lost our reasonable liberty through losing our relative equality, and we have lost our liberty and equality through the unrestricted growth of great commercial fortunes at the expense of small ones. It is very possible that Mr. Selfridge himself has all the innocence and simplicity of his nation, and does not know this, for he comes from a country which, with all its merits, is in this matter decidedly backward and behind the times. America is early Victorian in its economics and even in its ethics. It can still believe that the industrious apprentice became Lord Mayor without ever discovering the two difficulties in the proposition. The difficulty even in old times was that there were a hundred apprentices and there could not be a hundred mayors. The difficulty in modern times is that there are no apprentices. The system of apprenticeship could only coexist with the domestic and parochial spirit of the small shop. There were such things as industrious apprentices, but there are no such things as industrial apprentices. And the spirit of those boys truly apprenticed to a trade was, by universal tradition and record, the spirit that really brightened London. There were many reasons for this, but one was preeminent. The ordinary apprentices could not all be mayors, but they could all be masters. They did not all look forward to a predestination of proletarianism, to building or tending other men's houses until they died. They have been reduced to this impersonal servitude by the rise of the big shops and the big businesses which have infinitely increased the number of servants and decreased the number of masters, and therefore of free men. It is possible that Mr. Selfridge ponders thoughtfully upon these things. It is also possible that he has never heard of them. It is possible that he has not appreciated the last turn of history, or what is meant by the resurrection of Ireland and the returning power of France. We may yet see the big shop become something of a white elephant, and then something more like a mammoth. But in whatever degree the small shops stand for prosperity, there is no doubt that they stood for liberty, and therefore for gaiety. Nothing will ensure the beginning of that gaiety except the end of capitalism. Nothing will brighten London except knocking down the New York skyscrapers of millionaire monopoly with which we have been insane enough to block out the brightness of the sky. In a very living sense of the legal phrase, it is a matter of ancient lights.
End of section four. Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.